if you are the one with the mark of God on your forehead, it's because you are standing firm against an establishment that probably nobody expected. Adventure Through the Bible Podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are our friends Karen. Yes. And Amy. Good morning. And Tracy. Good morning. Good morning. Everybody's here having a good laugh at my expense this morning because I had some dental work done a couple days ago. <laughs> and uh, they all saw the picture of me when I was still numbed up and my face was sliding off of my skull. And then uh, today I'm all chipmunked up on the in my right cheek. And He's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> Can yes, but how do I look today, Karen? He's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you do like a little chipmunk voice? Or... <laughs> oh, <Alan. laughs> oh. Uh, dental work. Oh, so yeah. much fun. So much fun. Yeah. So anyway, people have been getting a good laugh at my, my uh, well, <laughs> some people wouldn't think it was funny if it was for real, but I mean. You know, it looked like I had a stroke and it was, it was, uh, <laughs> uh, but because I knew I hadn't had a stroke when I was, I was looking at myself, my wife was, was laughing her head off at me because I, I, I had smiled in her direction and she just busted up laughing. So I had to look. So I put the camera on my phone, turned it around to selfie mode. I looked at myself and I just died laughing. I was, and, and so then I had to take a picture and, 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 uh, can you use that photo as the cover to this episode? <laughs> you know, maybe I'll put it on. Uh, I'll put it up on the Facebook page or something, and people can can have a laugh at my expense. That's all right, because it is. It is to me. It's hilarious. I mean, I find it absolutely hilarious because I look. I just. I just look ridiculous. I just look so ridiculous. So <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it, it's it's worth it's worth a laugh, and then uh, <laughs> our listeners can can uh g- get a get a glimpse at uh my adorable face <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah no it's something it's something but um so anyway uh to segue which is this is a terrible segue <laughs> but um we are we are studying the books of ezekiel chapters 9 through 12 this week well, a little off because we took a week off for Easter. That and was disappointing, by the way. I accidentally read through chapter 13 and I was like, whoa, chapter 13 is the best one in this set. And then, no, I was wrong. Well, you have to be prepared <laughs> for next week. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, chapters nine, uh, Ezekiel chapters nine through 12. And we begin, we begin with Ezekiel remaining in the vision that he's been seeing of all the garbage that's been happening in the temple. Now, if we remember, I mean, Ezekiel has been having some weird visions anyway and been asked to do some strange stuff. I mean, chapter one was was well, it was, the, as Karen calls it, the uh, the mushroom episode. <laughs> but right. uh, where Ezekiel was having these strange visions of it's calling them cherubs with weird, you know, four faces and wings. Faces and, and, yeah. 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 Something strange that nobody has ever really come up with a good a satisfactory explanation of what it all represents, uh, you know, like a really good explanation. But um, other than to say that there are things on heaven and earth that we have no understanding of. But so chapter nine starts with, or I should say it really continues a vision that Ezekiel has been having 
of all the things that have been going on in the temple, which we've we've talked about here kind of extensively of the craziness that's been happening in the temple with idolatry and ritual prostitution and you name it. They did it. Seems yep. like, yeah, using it as a stables. Sorry, Amy, but putting horses in the Imagine. temple was probably Imagine. not the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amy, Amy is big into horses. And to clarify, the sacrilegious to the to the temple. Not yeah. that that's not good enough for the precious horses. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure the horses were were very comfortable there, uh, even though all the gold had been stripped out of it by this point. But um, but yeah, so just horrible, horrible things that have been happening in the temple. And Ezekiel's been having these visions of it. And so chapter nine starts with um, these six. It calls them it calls them six men. Was it six men or was it seven? Six. I think it was six. But one of them had was was kind of different over, over the others. But it said the six men with charge over the city. And it doesn't seem like this was like politicians. It seems to me like more like these were representations of like angels watching over the city or something like that. It's kind of the way I was taking this because they're clearly coming in judgment over the city. And like they're supposed to do stuff because i mean they've, they're coming with battle axes in their hand but one of them seems like he is a recorder he's got an inkwell he's wearing linen he's like set aside from the others and so he looks from a little different and they come into the temple through the north gate and stand beside uh the bronze altar now the man with this man with inkhorn he's told to go through the city and mark the foreheads of the men it says who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it what do you think about this mark that this guy was told to put on people? It reminded me of a couple of things. Uh, the first is, um, you know, in Exodus, when the children of Israel are told to paint the lintel of their doorpost with the blood of the lamb. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was <clears throat> that was really evident to me. And then the other one is in Revelation. I had to look it up at Revelation 7, 15 and 16. Yep. You know, the seal of God. Like mm -hmm. you, you have to have some sort of indication of who is truly following the Lord because vengeance is coming. Mm -hmm. That's what I have marked that they were separated so they would know who to go after. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Who to leave alone. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we think of Mark's, you know, it seems to always kind of get forgotten that they're, you know, when we come to the time of the end and people worry about having the mark of the beast put on them, right? But people seem to forget that there is a mark of God that will be put on people as well. And everybody's going to be marked one way or the other. And you want to make sure you have the right mark and not the wrong mark. Right. And this, like Amy is saying, this seems to be kind of a precursor to that, you know, a bit of a throwback to, um, to the Exodus and a precursor to... Uh, God's mark at the end of time. So it's very important for us because the people who have this mark are the ones who do not like the evils that they're seeing in the city. So, you know, when we think we, we've been talking a lot about all the evils that have been happening in Jerusalem, and it's important to remember. And it's, I think, too, it's kind of, it sort of is representative of our situation today where we see evils happening in our nation, in our world. Oh my goodness. But not everybody is willing to go along with it. 
a lot of people are trying to stand up. A lot of people are trying to speak out against it. The evils are, as Karen was saying earlier this morning, evil's not even trying to hide anymore. No. Right. Um, and so it's it's so important. It is very important for us to stand up, uh, speak out. Um, but doesn't that go? We've been watching that this entire way that I think that evil just goes in there ever so slightly and just continues to build. And the more passive we are to it, then by the end, it's so blatant and it doesn't phase us. Yeah. Or yeah. doesn't doesn't phase the masses. There's still going to be people in there that are like, this is wrong and calling wrong is wrong. But I think we just become so jaded in the end. It's like, okay, we've just kind of accepted it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Eric, who used to be on the podcast here, he said something a long time ago that kind of rang a bell with me and it's stuck in my head. He said, he said, you know, when I was a kid, I always would think about the end times and I would think to myself, like, how could how could God's people, like, how could doing the right thing stick out like a sore thumb mm. to where you're a peculiar people that become mm. targeted for it? He goes, yeah. then as time has gone by, and especially in, in recent years, I've started to realize, no, all you have to do is stand firm. And all of society is shifting around you. And pretty soon you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You're going to be that oddball and you will not have moved. You will just have stayed right there. Where, where God's standard is. Yeah, we want to make sure that we're not. This is a little different than the frog being stuck in the. Yeah, you, know, you probably heard the analogy of the frog in in the boiling pot of water. If you toss a frog into a boiling pot of water, it'll quickly try to get out. But if you slowly raise the temperature with the frog in the water, it'll sit there and boil to death because it doesn't realize what's going on. Well, imagine if we were able to, you know, not boil to death, but still be in there and hold still. I don't know. That's a terrible analogy. Um, well, I, do, I do think I think that what Tracy said is right. I think that I think yeah. that evil evil becomes injected little by little. This happened in Israel. We know it's going to happen again at the end of the world. Is that now? Don't know. But something is definitely happening now. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where evil is injected little by little. And in the name of let's let's put the best possible intentions on it. Let's say in the name of genuine Christian tolerance. Yeah. Right. Freedom of choice. Let's say that with the best of intentions, those little fine, fine bits of evil are accepted because who am I to tell you how to live, right? Right. And then you inject a little more and you inject a little more. And we all know what the Bible says about Satan. He's the father of lies. Mm -hmm. so he's been the father of lies for eons. And he, he does not speak the truth. And he is here to sabotage us as individuals family units, communities, and an entire and entire societies. Like he's out to do as much harm as possible for no other point. Like he's not even, he doesn't even, I don't believe that he even needs to accomplish some great evil goal. I think all he needs to do is sidetrack God's people from doing what they should and from focusing on the things that they should. We slide mm -hmm. our attention off of God. We start focusing on something else. Something completely innocuous, pop culture, our career. Guess what? That can easily become idol idolatry. It's just how it is. Yep. Anything. Just like we had talked about before, it's just to take the focus off God. Yep. So, and you could, you could do it through a multitude of things. But I think, too, just like you said before, it's if you tell a lie long enough, 
then you're going to take it for truth. Mm. And I think if we look at society today, you know, we'll call out things in, in the world and say that's wrong, but they continue. Somebody's always there saying, no, it's, let me give you this other spin on it or another spin on it. And before you know it, it just becomes second nature and we look over it mm-hmm. and it's like, and, and that's where we're at right now. But I think, I think as, as time comes to a close, then that's where the mark, especially too, or we're talking about to kind of go back to that is that's really what's going to separate us. And that's going to be the biggest thing that's going to make us stand out even towards the end where it becomes a target. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a reprimand to anybody who is not holding firm to God's standard. Um, you know, and there's there's different ways that the Bible describes that. I think in one place it says that the people had itching ears, right? And they were looking for something that they wanted to hear. They weren't looking for the truth, right? Like that kind of thing. And the in and I think it's Jeremiah. It says the people wanted smooth words rather than the truth. You know, the Bible has these different ways of describing that. And and yeah, if you stand firm and you don't budge, you are going to become a reprimand to the people who have slid with the times and are looking for the popular message. Yeah. yeah. A witness and just by the way you act, not even having to, to say anything. It's just your your overall demeanor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't even always have to speak out necessarily. You just have to live your life in a way that's different from the rest of the world and People will notice it, you know, like we've talked about here. A lot of times speaking out, knowing when to speak out and how, what to say and how to say yeah. it is, is, is hard. Yep. Um, because, doesn't mean... of that, because of acceptance, because of yeah. free will, because of like, I am not any, I am not in a higher position than anyone else. Who am I? Who am I to call out something? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's legitimate. Right. And then the flip side of that is someone has to. So it's kind yeah. of a, mm-mm. It reminds me of the story of the Waldenses, um, because because Mm -hmm. the Waldenses were just trying to mind their own business. Like they they grew chestnuts in the mountains and they had sheep, you know, they were just kind of minding their own business. But the inquisitors wrote things to try and inflame the population around them. And they would say, see, these people think they're better than you. And that was like a big part of why they were slaughtered was just creating this idea that these people think they're better than you, which is such a weird thing because they literally were just trying to mind their own business and be left alone. And then I, I believe at some point the Waldenses decided to engage in the war. Oh, yeah. As they started, you know, like handwriting out passages of scripture and tucking it into the lining of their clothing and heading down to become witnesses in the different parts of society, carrying the truth, which at that point was hidden from everybody. Like we think it we think that it's you know, it's a foregone conclusion that everybody has access to a Bible. That was not the case in those days. Like people didn't even know what the Bible said. They were having to hear the word of God from the pulpit only hear the word of God and the interpretation of the word of God only from the pulpit. They couldn't even go home and study something out for themselves. Talk about blind, right? Mm. And so the Walden sees they would go through this training process up in the, up in the mountains where they lived. And then they would, then they would go to war. They would, you know, and, and basically uh, this is kind of horrible, but the expectation was that when you left your mountain community and you headed off to war with the scripture sewed into the lining of your clothing, 
you had about a two-year lifespan expectancy at that mm. point. So at some point, they did engage in oh, that. Yeah. Oh, they totally engaged. But, you know, as far as physical battle, only when they were attacked, but they were attacked over and over again. And um, oh, yeah, when just... I say war, I don't mean physical war. Oh, 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 right, right. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They saw it as their mission to get the scripture into the hands of the people. Maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Waldenses, can you give just a brief, I mean, like a really brief history of who they were and what they were standing for? Sure. Um, they were people who lived in northern Italy who had kept the scriptures for a very long time, and they were the first to put the scriptures into the Italian language, so the local language, so people could read it. And they trained their young men to go out, like Karen was saying, into the world and give copies of the scripture. And a lot of people think that they fueled the Reformation because they were teachers and they gave the people the scriptures. Um, but they were farmers who lived in the mountains and they're near the city of Turin, which is also it's like 70 miles out of Turin. And that's where the seat of the Inquisition was. And so they were loathed by the inquisitors and the inquisitors decided to, to try and eradicate them. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting story and obviously vitally important to us to be able to, to read those scriptures, but, and a great, a great example of why, why we stand firm, why we need to stand firm for God's kingdom and, uh, and not be, I don't think shame is the word I want to use, but, you know, don't be afraid. Don't be don't be hesitant. You know, don't be shy about it. Yeah. What year did Martin Luther do his thing where he, put, where he wrote out the, the 95 thesis and oh. put it on the church door? That was like that was the big flag flagship moment of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But the but the Waldenses were before that by several hundred years. Yep. yep. The Waldenses were early early 1100s i think mm -hmm. and so if i remember correctly martin luther was in what was he the 15 was he the 1500s 1500s yeah yeah so this is several hundred years before and this was you know martin luther was a priest so he had access mm -hmm. to the scriptures and he could study to his little heart's content he spoke those languages and you know that there was written in and blah 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 the waldenses were lay people they were not they were not entrenched religious figures going to war against the religious establishment as they saw stuff that they thought was incorrect. These were normal people with with I don't I don't believe any sort of theological high ground, if that makes sense. Uh, one of the neatest stories about the Waldenses is is what Karen already mentioned. You know, they would take copies of the scriptures, sometimes the entire book of John, and they would go to people's homes and sometimes, you know, the homes of like aristocracy or whatever and come inside and say, hey, I'm selling uh, th things that are embroidered or I'm selling, you know, these particular cloths. And so they were merchants. Um, they, they were trained to sell specific types of clothing. And then they would enter the home, get to know the people a little bit. And if they felt like they might be receptive, they would say, and by the way, I have something far more precious than these clothes. And they would bring out a copy of the scriptures, which people in medieval Europe did not have. Right. And, and so suddenly, you know, the light came on in, in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and so, I mean, if, <laughs> if we, you know, there was a time in my life when I wondered, it's like, how in the world would we ever get in this world to a point where something like freedom of religion, freedom of speech, you know, especially in the United States, how, how could we ever get to a point where these things would even be questioned and, and, um, and then Twitter, Twitter was invented. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we can see how in the past these things have happened and history always has a way of repeating itself. Doesn't matter what technology we have, doesn't matter how enlightened we think we are. Um, these things happen and, and it gets to a point where if you are the one with the mark of God on your forehead, it's because you are standing firm against an establishment that probably nobody expected you know nobody expected to be so the the society to go so anti-god it's an interesting place to stand and you've you got to stand yeah i'm just i guess getting back to our text it's interesting to me that in verse six um when he's talking about you know this vengeance that's coming he says start in my sanctuary begin Mm -hmm. at my sanctuary and so i think there's an obligation uh, in that text to say, you know, those of us that know the word or those of us who are, are trying to follow God, um, God will, what is, what is the French saying, noblesse oblige, you know, to, to whom yeah. much has been given, much will be required. Yeah. Mm. You know, I looked at it, it, it pretty much in the same line. I have written down here that to me, it almost started like, you know, you want to go out and fix the world, but start in your backyard first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it is interesting that it had to start in the sanctuary, which was supposed to be the central. Yes, the most holy place, the most holy place, the central place where everybody was supposed to be focusing. This is I mean, this was literally where God was sitting when he would be with the people. And and this is where we have to start to purge the the corruption. And so, yeah, we have to start in our own churches because. Even even God's house isn't isn't immune to any of this. And, and you know, I'm going to go out on a, a limb here, and probably our millions and millions of listeners probably won't like this, but what we've seen, especially with the pandemic, that's where we took a big hit. Yeah, is that that fractured a lot of our churches, and it's yeah. just not singling out one denomination; nope. it's all of them. Yep, mm-hmm. where it caused a major rift that we're still feeling today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that is because it shook people, right? Our congregations, our local churches of all denominations are made up of people and it shook people to their foundation. A couple of things are coming to mind and this goes for ancient Israel in their thing that they're going through as much as it goes for really any other phase of human history. This is a, this is a human thing. Okay. So this is, from the um, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the wind fell and the floods came And the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So that's what all of this comes down to is what are you built on? And that what you are built on will determine whether you shift with the winds or you don't. 
Yeah, so the reason these people were given those, this mark, which I think we've already alluded to here, was because those those men with the axes then were told to go through the city and kill everybody who didn't have the mark. Very similar to the angel of death going through Egypt and wiping out the firstborn in houses that didn't have the blood over uh, the lintel, right? Lintel, am I using the right word? Yeah, that's the first Passover for those. Yeah. Yeah, and we we just the first Passover. Yeah, and we just went through Easter, and actually at our church we did a Passover service, and um, you know, and it had us all thinking about about those things. And, and that's and that's where the word Passover comes from. Is like the angel of death will pass over your house because you are marked. Right. Right. Yeah, I just kept noticing this phrase throughout this entire chapter nine, um, you know, where he basically says, "And don't pay attention to rank. Don't don't even pay attention to age." Um, you know, it's it's pretty disturbing, but it reminds me of Romans uh, 2, verse 11, you know, that God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't care what, what we value as a society. He says, who are you? What is your character? Are you mourning over the terrible things that are happening in this city? And if you are, I will pass over you. Yeah, so it all, I mean, it's all giving me reinforcement to st- Stand firm in the things that I have come to understand as a difference between right and wrong. And I know that there's some times when you got to stand in the middle and kind of navigate it all, but there's still a right and a wrong and, and trying to separate people from sin and all this stuff. You know, these are all this is all debating stuff that, you know, we as Christians have dealt with for a long time. Um, and we're seeing that we have to we, we're seeing ourselves in very I don't know, I guess maybe for us, maybe it feels unique. I suppose it's not. I suppose throughout history, it's been an issue. You you know, how do you you stand on what's right without without um, without shunning the people that you're trying to attract to what what was right. But it's so it's just it's super important to have that mark. It's so important. But um, Ezekiel. He's. He kind of gets worried about what he's seeing here. And so he he questions God on this. And he says, uh, will you destroy? Are you going to destroy what's left of Israel? I think he said, how did he put it? He might have even used the word remnant in there. I don't remember because I, I didn't I didn't have it written down in quotes here. Um, but I mean, like, it, are is, you gonna it is the remnant. Yeah, in I thought eight. so. Yes. Yeah. Oh, but, Lord. Oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. So, so, so Ezekiel is seeing this action that's going to be taken by God, and or has been taken by God, and he's he's just he's just worried, you know. But um, God, he just points out Israel and Judah are full of bloodshed and perversity, and they say that I've forsaken them. They have created their own ideas of morality to the point that when God isn't supporting them, they think God isn't listening to them. Or they think that, you know, I forget if we put this into today's context where we have people who think that, you know, our religion is outdated, that it's irrelevant, that, you know, mankind has ascended to a greater understanding of, of of uh, morality, a- and they think that God is just not important. 
I think that is a classic example of idolatry where, you know, the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Yeah. So if I take my ideas and I accept them as such truth that if God disagrees with me, he is the one that's out of touch with reality, that's some serious self-absorption. Absolutely. And it's been the, it's been the, it's been the struggle of mankind ever since Eden, ever since the serpent was in the tree and and telling Eve that she could be like a god or could be like God if she went against God's word and ate that fruit that he told her not to. We have instructions from God to have a good life and we have a sense of right and wrong and when we go against when we go against what god has implanted in us and decide that decide that we're right and and god is wrong that that is like an ultimate ultimate idolatry putting ourselves making ourselves our own idols but the, i mean but that's also like basic human nature like that yeah. is that is the essence of a fallen human being right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i would encourage everybody who curious to think about this to go and read the first chapter of James. So I will hop through it and read a couple of highlights, but it says things like this. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive any from the, anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Like, whoa. When tempted, one should not say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, gives birth to sin, right? So like Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not murder. I say to you, do not hate your brother, right? So the evil desire comes first. When it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When it is full, full grown, sin gives birth to death, right? And it just kind of goes on like that. And it's a, you know, it's a pretty much a bare knuckle punch to the face for anyone who has gotten in their mind to the point where their thoughts and feelings feel so justified that why can't God just do it my way? Yeah. Every man did what was right in his own heart. Right. Never, never, never amounted to good. Yeah, this is going to seem off the subject, but to what Karen was saying, I feel like it's one of the most amazing things about the creation itself is the fact that God somehow creates all these beings who are outside of himself. Like we don't exist just in his mind. We are separate and living creatures uh, and we have free will. And that's wild if you think about it. Like what sort of being is able to create living functioning free willed beings outside of himself like that's phenomenal but it comes with all these problems <laughs> like mm -hmm. it comes with the potential for for this trouble anybody who's ever parented knows what it's like to <laughs> do your best and love this little creature that you created and then they look at you and go i know what i do and they go and they do it their way and you're like how did this how did this happen this perfect <laughs> creature that is the fruit of my loins is being a little turd and I just, oh. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, no, definitely. As as parents, we definitely get a little glimpse of what it, what God must think when He's seeing us screwing up all the time. Well, all of this culminates when we move into chapter ten, then with some. Oh, I don't know. It's some more strange, strange visuals that Ezekiel is giving and trying to explain to us, and and it's hard to kind of really follow what he's going along with. It says something like a throne made of sapphire appears above the cherubim. Now, now we're in the temple, so I'm not sure if we're talking about the cherubim that were like over, like the statues that were in there, or if the oh, this is over those cherubim weird visions that he was having before, because it goes into describing. It seems like they're back in in this in this vision. So this this thing like a throne, it says. So maybe this is Ezekiel saying eh, it's kind of like this. I don't know exactly what it was, but that's what it looked like to me. But it appears above these cherubim, and he God says to the guy with the inkwell because he's still around now. Says, "Go among the wheels under the cherubim, fill your hands with coals, and scatter them over the city." And then these cherubim are standing on the south side. So this is like the opposite of where the six guys came in before. These cherubim are on the other side. Um, And we're told that the glory of the Lord rises from above the cherubim and pauses over the threshold. And this court is filled with with this brightness. So I'm I'm assuming this is all representative of just God's glory in the temple, right? Right which we've kind of seen some of these things before we've seen like when Moses was in God's presence, he, he literally glowed for days, weeks, however long, you know, or the dedication of the temple itself. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Well, when that's we right. That's saw right. things fill with smoke and we saw fire and, you know, and God is described as a being of fire. And so this is like, this is God moving to the threshold. And if God's like going to the threshold, it's like, he's, getting ready to move out of here. We're told that the sound of the wings, the wings of those cherubs, it says, is like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. Uh, I don't know if this means it's just like really loud uh, or or just what, but it sounds, that's kind of the way I took it, where it was just like the sound of their wings was like a roar or something. And so this man is, he's commanded to take this fire from the wheels, and one of the cherubs, so I, these are those weird creatures we saw before, four faces, wings, hands like human beings, feet like, I think they were like calf's feet, uh, bizarro, bizarro, weird looking things. Mm-hmm. He actually reaches down and hands the man some of the fire. And we get another description of of those wheels that we talked about in chapter one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if everything is exactly the same, but it's still wheels and everything's got eyes all over it. And um, the wheels, it says, are the color of barrel, wheel and fiddle in the middle of a wheel. And it's interesting, and I don't know why, but Ezekiel feels the, the importance to point out, he says, in my hearing, they were called wheels. Did you notice that? I don't know what the significance of that is, um, but he felt important to say that. Like, I'm just not saying they're wheels, but like I heard that they're called, like, these are wheels. So I don't know what that significance is. But we get we get the description again of the four faces. Interestingly, one of the faces sounds or it's described a little differently here than in chapter one, where here it says he has the face of a cherub 
instead of the face of an ox. So I'm like, that's the only two choices. Hmm. <laughs> well, but it, it's described as a cherub instead of an ox in this in this in this case, because in chapter one, they had the face of an ox, a man, a lion, an eagle. Here it says there's a cherub, a man, a lion and an eagle. So either way, either way, our. Our depiction of a cherub that we have with, the, with the, you know, the the cute little it wasn't a baby, the cute little fat baby with wings. You know, that's that's out. That is not a cherub. That is not a cherub as described in the Bible. And our depiction of of cherubs, even as big, tall human beings with long, flowing hair and and giant wings, that's out. That is not that is not a description of a cherub from the Bible. So whatever, if a cherub looks something like an ox, I think it's safe to say that um yeah those descriptions are are out and uh and we need to be rethinking our ideas of maybe necessarily what some of these things are but yeah the the description is very similar to what was in chapter one of these things of these things there in the room and then we're just told that the glory of the lord leaves the temple all of this description is leading up to verse 18 and it says and the glory of the lord departed from off of the threshold like god is getting ready to leave uh, you know, that area. And, uh, remember that, oh, that story in first Samuel where it talks about the glory is departed, you know, Ichabod. Um, there, there comes a time when the Lord says, I ain't having nothing more to do with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's not like it's just an arbitrary decision on his part to leave. It's, he's no. kind of been pushed out really. No, he oh, says it pretty clearly at the end of chapter nine that we just finished. The Lord, let's see. Um, the sin of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see me. So I will not look on them with pity or spare, spare them. So I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Like this is earned. What's going on here is earned. Mm-hmm. What I have is I have a little bit of highlighted section where I was just kind of thinking and, you know, at this point, we already know that they're they're leaving. They have to go to Babylon for 70 years. So God was always with his people and now his people are not centrally located anymore. It's not around the temple. So he's like, based on everything that's happened, I've spread you out. I've put you into, into <clears throat> bondage with Babylon. And I'm out of the temple now. I'm out of this central location here because now my people are all over. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Tracy, because I feel like God, you know, is clear that he will stick with us if we'll stick with him. But he's saying, okay, now I'm not going to be uh, in your temple. Um, You've defiled the temple. You've done these things that harm people. And um, I'm not going to be, you know, they were they were the light of the world in this, in this region. And they were supposed to be telling everyone about the glory of the living God. And instead they were sacrificing to idols and things like that. And so, but on an individual basis, he was still present with them. And of course we have the stories of like Mordecai and Esther, um, Daniel, God is very much present with each of them. Yeah. God is, he has, he has left this temple at this point. Man, I just, you know, you just think back to those original descriptions when we were reading about how amazing this building was and it, and he's, and God's not in it anymore. And we've seen it like slowly, 
I'm gonna say decay. I mean, it's it's kind of it amounts to the same, where it's just it it stopped being what it was for so many reasons. You know, either just the gold being stripped out of it or the things happening to it. It's just it's not what it was. It's not what it was, and you know, we I think I see that happening in a lot of things just in the world too. For me, it's a it's a whole different analogy, but where things that you thought were important are really neat. We're just starting to see them slowly not be what they were because we just kind of keep destroying them. Um, seems to be kind of our nature to just destroy the things of beauty around us and and uh, allow allow things to tear them apart. But the chapter ends with Ezekiel kind of giving a reassurance. These are the creatures I saw in chapter one. So it, it, I get the impression that this is Ezekiel saying that this has been this has been an ongoing message for years at this point because chapter one and chapter where are we now chapter 10 they're several years apart and and uh, so it's like it's kind of like he's saying that that this has been an ongoing thing and this these are the same they are they're the very same things that i saw before as we get into chapter 11 then ezekiel says he's carried by the spirit to the east gate I'm wondering why he couldn't have just walked over there, but it's his visions. So, because <laughs> I don't think, well, of course, East Gate was this, I got to remember, was this gate of the temple or is this maybe the gate of the city? Let me see here. I think this may be the gate of the city at this point. I thought point. it was the city gate. Yeah. So, so it might have taken him a little while to walk there <laughs> in, in vision. So anyway, he's carried by the spirit to this East Gate and there's 25 men there. And he's told these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city. And he's told to prophesy against them. So so these are like some specific people who have been they've been the ones spreading the falsehoods. These are the ones who have been telling everybody, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. We're going to be we're going to be okay. These are the ones saying God isn't listening to us anymore. So we're going to do these other things. And Ezekiel is being told to speak out against them. And they're gonna. God's saying that He's gonna remove them from the city, and they're gonna be judged, and they're gonna fall, fall fall by the sword. While Ezekiel, I guess, is then prophesying to these guys, and I, this is all still in vision. It's all. It can be a little confusing if you forget where you are, but it seems like while he's prophesying, one guy, Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, dies. Now, did you take that as literal, or did you take that as in the vision? I'm not sure. I kind of was originally thinking of this as uh, like an in and out thing, like like maybe he was told to prophesy again at some. And then when he's actually prophesying against them, one of these guys dies. I wasn't sure. Any of you have any insight there that I don't? Hmm. Yeah. So. But again, Ezekiel shows kind of some concern. Will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? So he's still he's still showing some concern that that Israel is just going to be completely gone. And maybe this is because he's remembering the promise that God had made that there would, that Israel was always going to be the God's people and there would always be a remnant. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I think, I think if, I think if any person with any good intentions and love for their own nation saw this, yeah, aren't you going to save anybody? Like, won't there be even a remnant? Like, nothing? Do they get wiped off the face of the earth? Mm-hmm. Well, and it does seem like a pretty complete 
judgment happening here where where if you're not totally sure you, you might think wow god's just going to wipe us out yeah um i was looking at verses 16 and following therefore the lord says although i will cast them uh, among the heathen and although i have scattered them among the countries yet i will be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries that they shall go to um i will gather you he says later in verse uh, 17 um, and then goes on to say in verse 19, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And so he's he's now introducing, you know, this idea of the new covenant, which in reality isn't new. It's exactly what he had with Abraham. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> he's saying it's, it's not going to be about the sanctuary. It's not going to be about your national identity. It's going to be one on one, but I'll be with you. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so this idea of new covenant is not new testament centric this is it's always been the same covenant you know it's interesting that it gets called new covenant in some ways it looks different but all of the principles are still intact do what god says be his people he will be your god that's what it's always been you know we've got a I don't know, this may sound a little sacrilegious, but we put a new wrapper of Jesus around it, but it didn't change the parameters of it. Love God, love your neighbor. God will be your God. You will be my people, you know? Well, and like what he he did with Abraham was, you know, hey, Abraham, I'll be your God, um, but you have to believe me. And God, and Abraham believes him, and the Bible says, and that was counted to him for righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. So I was... Looking here in 16, and this is kind of where I I look at it now, is it's no longer a nationality where God basically says, you know what, um, although I have cast you far among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered you among them, and it, uh, scattered them among the other the, the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. To me, that made it, it personal. It's no longer... Israel, Jerusalem, um, the Mecca, that's where God is. Now it's, I'm going to go with you everywhere. I'll be with you everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had never noticed that passage before this study time with you guys. And I think that is such a cool passage. Yeah. And it's very similar to what, how we, how we perceive these things today. It's very much more one-on-one. It's very much more, it's carried within each one of us. I mean, here where God says he is the sanctuary, but now by having the Holy Spirit live within us, it sort of makes us the sanctuary where God and man meets, you know, and and so we don't have to go somewhere now to 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 experience God. He's he's with us. He's in us. He's not that we're God, but it's like he's part of us. Well, I I don't. I mean, it's it says that we're the temple. Yeah. So I think that during phase one of the covenant, which, yes, it's the same covenant, you know, first and second phase of the covenant is basically what it is. It's the gospel, right? It's the plan of salvation. But it came in two phases, these symbolic things as we look forward to the real thing happening. And then there's then there's the period where the real thing has happened. And now we, you know, the message is the same. Salvation is the same. The mechanism is still the same, but it looks different mm-hmm. because it's actually happened now. We're not looking forward to it. We're not, we're not buying into like by our, by our actions, we're not buying into the, the future plan. 
we're buying into the thing that already happened. So I just, I think that we're the temple now. I completely agree with what you said. The, you know, that when Jesus died, the veil separating the mercy seat from the place where the priest would go and do all the work, the holy place from the most holy place was torn. And that was Jesus. That was the lamb stepping into that spot that, that it makes the bridge between, you know, it used to be the, the temple, like the physical temple, like you're talking about needing to go to a place to worship, right? And that all became internalized. So I think that for the, for the Hebrews in this time and space, what we're reading about, this was a huge novelty. Like, what? God can be with us no matter where we are? I mean, think about Daniel. When he was taken into captivity, he still opened his windows facing towards Jerusalem to do his prayers. That's how tightly tied to the temple ceremonies these people were. You know, the idea that God could be within you and you he could be he could be a little sanctuary for you everywhere you were was just like this great novelty. To us, it's the way things are. But to them, that was pretty revolutionary, I think. I think I, uh, going back to what you said in the midst of that, it's I think when you you hit on it when you said they were so closely tied to the sanctuary, just the routine and the, you know, just the whole process of that. I think that's where self led them astray is that they, they got lost in so much of that legalism and, and ceremonial acts that they forgot that relationship with God. Yes. And it led them down the wrong path where it it became more of a, like almost like what you were saying, a novelty than a relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the temple, I think, had become their focus rather than the God of the temple, mm-hmm. which is why they felt fine doing these other things there. It's like, oh, as long as we're using the temple, it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, so back to the Waldenses, that reminds me of something with them. So they lived in a time when... You know, in a medieval time when the church was saying, hey, you have to come to these specific churches, you have to pray with a priest, the priest will forgive you, et cetera, et cetera. And the Waldenses were, they actually had a saying, which was prayer in a barn is as efficacious as prayer in a church and any man may approach God. And and so that was so revolutionary in their time, just this idea of me and God and you know, I am thou, that sort of thing. It's not that there has to be an intermediary because Christ is our intermediary already. And that was, that was huge in their time. Yeah. That was during the time when the, the, uh, the Catholic church had a pretty good, pretty good stranglehold on religious knowledge. Like we've got the Bibles and they're in the language that the priests can read. And they're over here and they're chained to the walls and you can't have them. And even if you could have one, you couldn't read it, but that's okay. We'll do it for you. Right. So that, yeah, I mean that the whole idea that you could directly approach God was just phenomenal. Right. Mm-hmm. Why they called it. I mean, to me that that's why they called it the dark ages is talk about, talk about human, talk about human free will being smothered. Right. If you put, did they have free will? Yeah, within the tiny, tiny, tiny little world of options that they knew. 
And they didn't know what a lot of these people didn't know. Millions of people, millions, lived out their entire lifespan thinking that you had to go to a priest and have a priest read the Bible to you and tell you what it meant in order to access God. Like, that's phenomenal. You know, mm -hmm. so here we've got the Israelites. They're used to the same system. They've got a system of priests. They've got mm -hmm. a literal system of sacrifice that they're supposed to do. It's kind of ritualistic. You go, there's a ceremony, and you're cleansed of your sins. You know, and now here's this here's this idea. No, 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 no. It's in your heart, guys. It's in your heart. Yeah. <laughs> I've been trying to tell you that, and your, and your little human peon brains got caught up in the rituals. Like, the rituals aren't the thing. Your heart is the thing. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. You know, and it makes me wonder what... Okay, so as people were carried off to Babylon, and then now present day when there is no temple, I I, I question, I wonder how how the people, how Jewish people believe that sins are forgiven. Because, you know, it, with that focus on the temple and having to bring a lamb and have it have it slaughtered and have all the all the ritualistic things done to it having to do that to have your sins forgiven but now you can't do that because there is no temple and here god has left the temple he's he's not there anyway how do they think this works now well but look at it what they're looking forward to they're looking forward so much to the rebuilding of the temple yeah. um mount zion that they're looking for that temple once again yeah that's yeah. where their focus is. Yeah. I just still wonder what the current generations believe about forgiveness of sin. You know, I don't I don't know. I don't understand how they how they go, how they do it. I don't get it I because don't, I don't know firsthand. But what I've heard is that um, Orthodox Jewish people believe that someday the temple will be reset up and that that. Sins are sort of held in abeyance, some sort of suspension until there's a proper temple where they can go and do do the thing. Hmm. That's my understanding. And then there's Messianic Jews who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So they, yeah. they follow the Jewish whatever, but then there's Jesus the Lamb there. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's kind of like my rough understanding of it. Um, eh. So, yeah, kind of like everything's on hold and they're just waiting for something interesting. Yeah, I agree with what you guys are saying about like the Orthodox Jew, um, but for in my experience, for the most part, um, most of the Jewish people that I've met are not believers. Like it's a great tradition, it's it's a rich mm. culture, um, but they're atheistic. Yeah, yeah, which is unfortunate because yeah, well, it does seem like there's the a Bible lot of calls that out. Hope deferred, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Interesting. But like, think how many centuries, like back in the Old Testament, they were waiting and waiting ever since Eve, been waiting mm -hmm. for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah. Look at all the damage the earth has sustained from mm -hmm. nasty humans and our stupidity to each other and to ourselves. That's enough to make anybody go atheistic. If you're looking mm -hmm. around wide eyed and hopeful for the Messiah, how mm -hmm. long can you do that? How many generations can you do that before? What's the point of spreading the hope? What do they call it? Opium? It's opium. Hopium. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah. Hmm. Stuff gets ugly, and that, you know, don't you think the devil plays into that as much as possible? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I would. I can just imagine the devil sitting there whispering in people's ears, hey, didn't God tell you he was going to send you a Messiah and he hasn't come yet? And if they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, 
And I know that, you know, the people that are holding on so tightly to, to Judaism don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, not the Messianic Jews, of course, but like you said, those Orthodox Jews. Uh, that would It's no wonder that there are so many Jewish people who don't, they just, they, they, they just don't really believe. So I had a professor of animal ethics when I was at CSU and uh, we would talk about this and, and he was um, a Jewish guy and, and he said, you know, look, the Holocaust um, changed us and we can no longer essentially believe in a good God. And or God at all. <clears throat> so it was pretty startling revelation to me because you know I'm a believer, um, but that was definitely his take. And then you know that was years ago, and I've had that same experience in conversation, you know, before. I mean, the Holocaust is <clears throat> is Satan's own work. I mean, that's it's like you find your people in the hands of the most evil power on the planet. And I feel like when we look at that, we're looking at what Satan's kingdom looks like. But it's interesting to me that the remainder of chapter 12, you know, goes on to talk about the fact that um, the visions will be fulfilled. There will be no more prolonging it, Um, you know, and so he's saying no more delay, no more delay. So I work in mental health and one of the key things for understanding humans is that depression is not the primary indicator of suicidal suicidal tendencies the urge to the urge to cease to exist mm. it is not depression it is not sadness it is hopelessness mm. so a person who is sad or depressed can live through it if somewhere in their mind or heart there is light at the end of the tunnel mm. And that's, yeah. how you, that's how you destroy a people is have them go through the Holocaust where they're crying out to be saved and it not to come. How demoralizing. Yeah. yeah. You say that is. But I have to I have to kind of jump into the story because it, it happened this week. And while I was reading this, it just kind of hit home is um, uh, me and my wife, Regina, were driving. I think she had to go to Hobby Lobby or something. So of course, so I'm tooling along there and rolling my eyes and wanting to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're we're driving and we go through the um, entranceway to this and we see a, a homeless person there and Gina goes what what does he have written on the sign that he's holding she goes I just really need to see she was like slow down slow down I'm like you're having me slow down to read a sign and she's like I, I just feel I have to read this sign and the sign on this person said I've lost all hope mm. and mm. And so Regina went into the store. I, I waited out in the car because she said it was going to be quick. And she came out and she goes, we have to go back that way. I'm like, what? She goes, there's something about that sign that just mm. plunged into my heart. She goes, and I need to go talk to that person. Oh. And I'm like, okay. So we went back and and she goes, you know what? There's always hope. And she got into this conversation with him and she was looking at his face and she goes, what is your name? And I was like, and I'm thinking to myself, my wife is like doing the 20 questions on this poor homeless person. And he was a young person. And I felt, I, I felt on the hot seat. I was like, gee, how many other questions can you maybe give me some food or money, but not all the questions. <laughs> and, and he proceeds to tell her his name. And my wife goes, 
and your brother is such and such and your sister-in-law is such and such. <gasps> she goes, I know you. Oh, wow. Because you've been what? to my shop about 10 years ago with your, with your sister-in-law. She goes, what are you doing? Wow. Wow. And he proceeds to break down and goes, drugs and meth, and I have nothing. Divine mm. appointment. That's awesome. And Regina goes, wow. but you know what? You have Jesus. Wow. So there is always hope. That is so awesome. Wow. And she, you know, and, and we don't do this a lot, but she opened up her wallet. She gave him the money she had. I had a, a card in there for Weld County um, Health Department, the social worker there. Um, I'll probably give her a shout out now. Her name is Aurora Medina. And I usually tell everybody in Weld County that all roads for resources lead through Aurora. <laughs> and... <laughs> We gave him all that information. She gave him the flyer for our church, our the Easter program that was already over, but it had all of our information. And she said, just know that there's always hope. And she goes, I'll be checking here for you. She goes, and I don't want to see you here. I want to see you getting the help that you need. Yeah. And it was like, you know what? Even though we were reading today in the signs and being marked, that God is on the move with every single person. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, he'll find a way to reach out to a homeless person that's out there that, you know what, is still one of his children. And mm -hmm. you know what, your life might have a bigger purpose and a bigger picture than you actually know. But don't ever give up hope. Uh, wow. So that is a gorgeous divine appointment. And I think that, you know, Regina's got a, your wife, she's got a good brain for remembering people. And yes, that's, she does. that's like, that's just perfect that that happened. You know what? And my first thought when you like the thing that went through my brain, when you first said like, we, you know, we passed this guy and this is what his sign said. My first thought was not quite because he's, because he's got a sign out waiting for someone to change his mind. Yeah. Mm. Mm, yeah. She was in that last gasp phase of yes. hoping that there was hope. Yeah. Right. And I'm so, down, like, if you've seen one guy, spark and I need some accelerant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the guy? He's kind of gotten famous for it. He, he, like, sits at a table and he puts out some kind of, like, inflammatory statement and then says, change my mind. Right. Have you seen this guy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what that guy was doing in his own way. He's like, yeah. Change my mind. This is my last effort. And I know a whole lot of people who are facing that right now because is God on the move? Yes. Is Satan on the move to try to counteract that and continue to do as much damage to the vulnerable as possible? Yes. Are we all vulnerable? Also, yes. Mm. Are we also God's champions? Also, yes. Right? It's a mixed bag. Welcome to humanity. But that's that's stunning. That's that's lovely. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, that is a story. That is amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, because I'm, <laughs> I am unfortunately one who often pretends I don't see those people, because <laughs> um, it's hard. It's so hard to know who actually needs the help and who is just looking for that handout. Who's just looking for the fish sandwich that day, as I like to say. Mm -hmm. You know, because like when people came to Jesus the the day after he had fed them. And and he turned them away, you know, it's just like, no, you're just looking for a handout and uh, just giving a handout is not helping. That's my opinion. Some people disagree with me. 
but just giving handout isn't isn't helping. But amazing that she was able to reach out to him in a way. And I hope that I hope that he. I hope he remembers that. I hope that he does reach out. Yeah, you know, and I hope it it was on such a personal level that he he knows that that was the lifeline that he needed. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yep. No, hats off to Regina there for for stepping up like that. <laughs> you have a very bold wife. We all know this. As, oh, as if oh, yeah. as if she could do anything but step up. It's in her nature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anybody right. who knows Regina. Oh, and happy anniversary, by the way. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But anybody who knows Regina knows that she she will speak out if she feels the need. And she's an inspiration yep. in that aspect for sure. I told her I was going to write a book someday called Alpha Females for God. And she was going to get her own chapter. She thought that was. <laughs> <laughs> then she, and then because she's herself, she proceeded to name the chapter and tell me what it should be called. And I was like, <laughs> yes, well, there I thought you it go. was not book, but OK. Well, there you go. <laughs> funny, funny, funny. <clears throat> <laughs> Alrighty, well, back to to the text here. Ezekiel 11 ends with the, the glory of God leaves the city. It doesn't just leave the temple, but it says that the glory of the Lord goes up from the city, stands on the mountain on the east side of the city, and then the Spirit takes Ezekiel to Chaldea, which is Babylon. Ezekiel speaks and tells all these visions to the people who are in captivity. This all had to have been very interesting for those people in captivity to hear. It's like getting a little news report of everything going on back home. And I think it seemed like the people who were in captivity were actually listening to Ezekiel, at least some of them. Because I think there was one point we were talking about how he was like sitting with elders. Uh, and so he had, apparently had the ear of some prominent people there. And so he's he's telling them all these things that he just saw. And Ezekiel 12 begins with an interesting verse where it says that God is telling Ezekiel that you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes to see but does not see and ears to hear but does not hear for they are a rebellious house. You know, so many times Jesus echoes those thoughts of eyes to see and ears to hear. Are you paying attention? Are you listening? Are you, you know, are your eyes open? Are you seeing what's happening? Or have you closed your ears? Have you closed your eyes? Are, are your blinders on? Are you not trying to see? Are you not trying to understand what's going on? Or are you just listening to your own thoughts on the subjects? Uh, so I found that interesting that that God is pointing out these people do not have the eyes to see and ears to hear like Jesus talks about. Then Ezekiel is given some more strange instructions to do where he's told to prepare his belongings for captivity. And I'm like, but he's already in captivity. So it's a, it's an odd thing, but he's supposed to bring his stuff out as if he's going into captivity. He's supposed to dig through the wall. I think it's dig through the wall of his house. Cause I'm assuming he was given a house to live in once they were in Babylon, dig through the wall, carry your belongings out through that wall Take them out at twilight, cover your eyes so that you can't see the road, and tell the people that this concerns the prince of Jerusalem. So this is kind of a vision of what's going to happen. The prince will bear his belongings on his shoulder at twilight. They'll dig through the wall to carry them out, and God will bring him to Babylon, And but they won't. he won't see it. So let's kind of talk about Zedekiah, because Zedekiah's eyes were put out. So this is like a right. literal, and you, yep. you, you can't see the road because... 
Zedekiah is not going to be able to see. Is that what that was? Because I thought that was so weird. Okay, that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, it was very weird. I had to read. I had to read some of the footnotes. Yeah. Yeah, I had to go to footnotes in in a couple of different Bibles to get to that. And yeah, I thought it was very weird. But when Zedekiah's eyes got put out and then he was carried off, he he couldn't see what was going on. And and um, if I remember right, if I remember right, Zedekiah escaped through a hole in the wall trying to get away, but they caught him. So I think that's kind of what God is depicting here, where they're going to try to take everything out through the wall. Uh, but he's still going to get captured. It says everything, everybody with him is going to be scattered. They'll have the sword drawn after them. So they're, they're you know, it's going to be, it's going to be an ugly, it's going to be an ugly thing. And then like God says so many times, then they will know that I am the Lord. It says, but I will spare a few of them. Isn't it sad that we have to get to that point? We have to get to that point of being down and out before we recognize that God is, that God is God, that God has authority, that God, is the one we should have been listening to all along. No. I think that that's when we're at our most fragile and vulnerable mm-hmm. and, and looking for that hope. It's like, and we're at rock bottom. Yeah. And, and that's, unfortunately, that's majority of the time when we tend to look to God. Right. I think, you know, when, and, and it shows by example, you know, what we've read is when you're sitting on the top of the mound and fires coming out of heaven and there's gold laden all throughout your temple and it's one of the wonders of the world then that's when you tend to turn to self and then you watch it all deteriorate yeah if only we could if only we could remember to look at god when things are going well and be thankful thankful for the things we have that are going well but too often we we wait until everything has fallen apart before we <laughs> you know it's like I tried everything else. I couldn't think of anything else, so I decided to pray. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all guilty of it. You know, we all we always want to try to do our own. You know, stick ourselves in there and try to take care of things and forget to pray before before we even start things. If we would remember to pray before we even start things, yeah. how much better would things go? You know. Well, and I think that's an interesting balance point because, as we talked about earlier, we're also created with free will. You know, so it's like. So it's like, how much of this is under my command and how much of this do I place under God's command and how much of that is, I mean, okay, it's supposed to all be indirectly under God's command because I am under God's command, right? So there's that. But within that, what is in my realm of decision-making? Because independence feels good and we were created with a mind and creativity and capability and stuff like that. So like, when do you call on God? Do you, you know, do you do that? first because you just aren't making decisions on your own do you do that first because your faith is that infinite like weird i mean like how does that i don't even i can't even find that balance point sometimes yeah i mean i guess from my perspective it's and i don't always do it i you know i forget <laughs> yes like you like you said we are you know we're under god's authority and so indirectly what we do should be under his authority but if we can just remember ask for instructions. And I know the instructions aren't always like direct, but I do think that we do give when we're seeking it, when we're asking God for that wisdom, he'll give it to us. And and the more that we try to stay connected to God, the more we try to stay in tune with him, the better our decision making is going to be. And so if we constantly if we're just constantly praying, you know, start our day with praying, God, give me wisdom today. Help everything I do to be to your glory. Uh, to go well, to, you know, to, to be fruitful, 
I, I think it's, I think that's probably going to help. And, and then we're really not just trying to do things on our own. Yeah. So I like what you said, Matt. And so part of what I was going to say, you already covered, but I feel like that's something I'm trying to work on is to pray about my decisions more intentionally and not just pray when I'm already in trouble, mm. <laughs> but in a bigger way, I think it's interesting that, that the Bible tells the story of the 10 lepers and the one who turned back to say thank you. And that's where I really want to live. Like I want to live in that thought that God is so good to me and I want to always be remembering to tell him thank you and to look at all the good things around me and think, you know, God's doing all this for me. He cares about me. Yeah. And it's like he likes people who say thank you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, pray to ask for guidance before. Pray to ask for guidance when the decision is right in front of you. Pray to thank God for his for helping you through it. Pray. Uh, I mean, who was it? Where does it say? Um, I'm paraphrasing, but be in a constant state of prayer. Pray without ceasing. Pray without Philippi ceasing. Philippians, I think. Thank you. That's that's the that's the words I was looking for. I think that also acknowledges, you know, where all your strength, knowledge, power, you know, protection comes from. I often tell my patients, it's like, well, how do you do this every day? It's like, and I tell them my first thing in the morning, my prayer in the morning is, you know what, just help me to help other people, help me to do good and not to do harm. And that every treatment I give is going to help them to be better. Mm hmm or, you know, improve their health and not hurt their health. And I think that it just keeps you in such a, a mode of being just humble and and really just knowing that what I'm doing is nothing. It's it's all God. Mm -hmm. And I know the days that I, I get in a hurry or something, or, you know, I, I don't get out of bed as quickly as I should or whatever, and I neglect to pray. Uh, I definitely feel a difference through the day. I definitely see things going not as well as they could and sometimes i just have to stop what i'm doing immediately and get back in tune with god and i start to see things straighten out i heard a neat thing in a sermon somebody posted online and it said um you know get up in the morning say your prayers connect with your father and then go to war mm. i was like nice yes. okay well the chapter ends with something that Amy already spoke to where people are saying, and it says it's quoted here. What is this proverb? The days are prolonged, prolonged and every vision fails. God says, tell them they won't say this anymore. I am the Lord. I speak and the word which I speak will come to pass. <laughs> so. Hooray. We, yeah. We have this assurance that everything God has told us is going to happen will happen. Uh, sometimes it sounds like a negative where, you know, this is a judgment over the, over the nation of Israel, over the nation of Judah, uh, and those people of the time. Um, but he don't forget, he's also said here, I'm going to bring back a remnant. I'm going to bring you back. I'm still going to be your God. You're still going to be my people. And, and so we can take that both sides, you know, take it as a warning, take it as a promise that what God says he's going to do, he's going to do it. And that's where we can find that hope like we were talking about. We don't have to hold up a sign. I've lost all hope because if we remember, we look to this. I'll tell you what, that's what carries me through when I see when I see the evils happening in the world. And, and, and I cannot fathom how how people's consciousnesses conscious 
weaknesses <laughs> and moralities lead them to believe that such evils are good and such good is evil. Just remembering that everything God said he's going to do, he's going to do it. And, we you will... know, I kind of finished up with this one going, you know what? It was almost to the point where I was feeling like God was telling him, listen, we have talked about this so long and I've been giving you so many warnings and, and telling my prophets to tell you this and you not acting on it because you thought it was far off. Well, now it's here and you never have to say that we're looking to the future anymore because it's right now. You're in mm -hmm. captivity right now. Mm -hmm. This is your reality now. He's always with us in our realities, wherever we are. Yep. We're, we're in a bit of a captivity now. We're in a bit of a seclusion from what we are expecting to happen. But we can have faith that it will happen. So it makes me think of Second Peter chapter 3, where Peter talks about the fact that in the last days, there will be people who say, where's the promise of his coming? And, mm. you know, they're, they're scoffers who say, well, I don't even believe in God anymore. And um, and he talks about God's patience and how God has been so patient. But but his main point is made by the story of the flood. And he says, you know, look, I warned them and I warned them and I warned them. And then the flood came and that world perished. And then he's essentially saying the same thing in Ezekiel. You know, I kept warning you the Chaldeans are coming. You know, you're going to go into the Babylonian captivity. And that that day really did come. And so then finally, of course, in the last days, he will return mm -hmm. and and he's kind and patient. And that's why there's the prolonging of time. But we should not take advantage of his kindness. Yeah, because eventually it's got to happen. Mm -hmm. It's it's you know, it's got to happen because he said it will. Mm -hmm. He can't he can't hold off forever. He just, he, he, he can't. I mean, what would happen to us if he did? It would be, right. it would be horrible, horrendous. If we, if we kept reaping all the things that we're sowing in, in this world right now, it would be horrendous if he, if he stayed away forever and just right. kept waiting and holding off. Cause you know, I don't believe, I don't believe for a second that God wants to see anybody perish. You know, but we do know that this world is going to end in fire and mm -hmm. fire is fire is destructive. And I don't believe for a second that God wants that to happen to his people, but he cannot hold off forever. He can't because we'll just keep wrecking things and destroying ourselves. So. So, yeah, I am the Lord. I speak and the word which I speak will come to pass. Amen. Yeah, so I think that this is where we will leave off for this week. Next week, we will be getting into Ezekiel chapters 13 through 17. So Karen, rejoice. We'll, we'll still talk about chapter 13. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, Ezekiel chapters 13 through 17. While you are reading that and waiting for us, remember you can reach out to us at attvpodcast at theadventure.org. Uh, you can look for us on Facebook. Please be sure to share the podcast with your friends and relatives and neighbors. And make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.
By the way, yesterday my mom listened to the episode with the mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that just came up. That, that just came up yesterday. So, <laughs> Amy, Amy, were you around for that one yet? I, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, was, I thought you were because I thought I heard your voice coming out of her room. But I walked in from outside. It was gorgeous here. It was like eighty-two perfect degrees. You know, light breeze, just gorgeous sunshine. I was like, I'm so happy, and. uh so I came in from outside, sprawling uselessly in a chair outside in the sunshine. And uh, my mom goes, Karen, <laughs> she goes, I'm listening to the podcast and I got to the mushroom episode and I had I'd forgotten. So I just cracked up laughing. <laughs> the mushroom episode. 